Support for An Honest Account comes from Moneybox, the award-winning app helping people save and invest for their future. Moneybox allows you to invest with your spare change, from your morning coffee to your bus fare, rounded up to the nearest pound. Moneybox offers a range of savings and investment accounts and makes it super easy to use. All you do is sign up in minutes and get started with just one pound. Join over 200,000 people saving and investing for their future with Moneybox. You can download the app today or head to moneyboxapp.com for more details. Please remember that with all investing, your capital is at risk. And thank you to Moneybox. Welcome to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our relationships, our mental health, work and more. I'm Rachel Revis and for the first episode I'm talking to Elle Hunt and Serena Bergman about shame, judgement and why we don't really want to talk about money even to our close family and friends. But now that we have a gender pension gap, gender pay gap, gender investment gap, it's increasingly important to be more open about money. Thank you, Serena and Elle, for joining me. Thanks, Serena, for hosting us. We're talking about money today and basically why is it that it just feels a bit dirty to talk. So if you're talking to your friends or family, if you talk about money too much, is that something that you guys, Serena, for example, do you relate to that feeling or do you feel like you can talk about it openly? I think I think this is quite a British thing and I actually grew up in Spain. So perhaps my kind of... I don't know, I was, I was brought up not to think about things in the same way, perhaps. There isn't the same kind of stigma around talking about money. I think when you're in your kind of late 20s, early 30s, it does become a bit complicated because I think when you're at uni or you've just graduated, no one really has much money and everyone's quite open about that. And I think when you get to a certain point, I think we can fall into the trap of thinking that money equals success. And so <clears throat> talking about having money sounds like you're bragging about your life, talking about not having money, you think maybe has some sort of relevance to how you're living your life and your level of success. And I think perhaps, I don't know if this is true for older generations, but for me, that's what I typically notice with people my age. Mm. And Elle, you grew up, well, you spent a lot of time in New Zealand and Australia, is that right? Yeah, and I think that that, I have the same experience in that I grew up as a teenager and um, university into my like start of my adult life with quite a lot of transparency about what I had. And as you say, it was like not very much as a uni student. So you all kind of made that work as a whole. But then when you started getting entry salaries, negotiating rises for jobs, that kind of thing, I think even with my friends that now in New Zealand still, we still talk about how much we earn, how, you know, what kind of pay increases we've been able to negotiate. Um, and it was really only when I moved to England two years ago that I noticed that there was this kind of distastefulness about talking about it. Um, and I sort of just kind of waded into that um, without thinking, really, and found that the re- reception was far different to what I'd been used to. And partly I think that was an element of naivety, realising that it's like, 
different between talking about it with your friends um, than it is talking about it with strangers. So I imagine like with close friends here in England, it's still probably, there's quite a bit of transparency. But as you were saying, Serena, as well, it's, I think as you get older and people's incomes start to diverge quite significantly, um, how you spend your leisure time becomes exclusive or not. So people will want to go on holiday that you can't afford and then you have to sit it out or things like that, which maybe wasn't the case when everyone was earning kind of the same amount, which was not very much. <laughs> so I'm not going to say the word, the word outsiders isn't right here, but it's people <laughs> who've lived elsewhere for a significant period. What do you, what do you attribute that distasteful feeling? I know, you, Serena, you mentioned about it sounds like you're bragging. But what is yeah. it, the class structure? It's, got, it's always the class structure yeah, in this country. It's yeah. always. And the thing that's weird about it is that it, people who are upper class uh, aren't necessarily the ones with money. <laughs> you yes. know, in, in New Zealand and Australia, the people who have the most money are the most powerful. But here you can be the most powerful and not have much money. So I don't, it's, it's interesting how they are still linked, even though the class structure is kind of, I guess, distinct in England because it's not necessarily tied to material wealth or you're trying to downplay it all the time. And I think also in terms of education in this country mm. and the way that it works, at least when I was growing up, you know, I went to a state school in Spain, but there were kids there who had really very little money, whose parents were what we would consider very working class, very low income families. And there were also kids who went on, you know, big holidays every year and they had a second home. Um, and there wasn't really much of a divide there. And there wasn't a sense that they were different to us. You know, everyone knew, oh, this person has more money mm. than most of us. But it was never a sense that they're inherently different. Mm. And I think what British class does is make people feel different based on that. And it sequesters the, the very wealthy away from everyone else, right? Like my experience of, of high school was the same, where there were the people who you know their parents were loaded and had the big house, but ultimately they were still there with us getting the same education. Did either of you get any kind of financial education at school and other countries? No. No. No, okay. not at all. But my parents were always really careful with money um and when I was growing up that was the number one thing they sort of talked about in front of my sisters and I um and there was a lot of like day-to-day -day budgeting and basically it was impressed upon us they didn't care what we did for work or who we married as long as our finances were in order oh that's interesting yeah it was really unusual I think that's still the case like the kind of angriest I've ever seen my dad at either of like any of us girls was when my younger sister like didn't really understand what a credit card was and sort of <laughs> run off with that to Spain. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, mm. I don't think I did it at school either. I definitely, um, from a really young age, wanted to be financially independent to the extent that you can when you're living with your parents and they're buying your food and stuff. But I had jobs from when I was really young and I always just kind of instinctively wanted to budget my money and wanted to never have to kind of ask for money from anyone. And so I think I just kind of lived my life that way from the age of 11 or 12 and have continued to do so. And it stood me in very good stead being self-employed. Mm. I did not do that. <laughs> but do you think that your lives would be materially different if we'd had that education? The biggest thing I would say would be different is that when I first got uh, my first office staff job, I then got a credit card and basically didn't really understand and understand it and I think everyone who gets a credit card for the first time just kind of runs off with it and is like free money 
racks it up, maxes it out, and then realizes how long it takes to pay back. And so I think if I'd kind of better understood what was happening there, I probably wouldn't have gotten one in the first place or used it differently. Um, and the other thing was I probably would have approached my student loans differently as well if I'd really understood that. Like I took as much as I could get as a student, probably more than I really needed to live because I was also working at the same time and I'm still paying that back now, you know. Mm -hmm. And and if you were to tell, you know, 18-year-old me that you'll still be paying it back 10 years <laughs> and probably for another 10 years after that, might not have, might not have yeah, taken so much. definitely don't think about it at the time. No, totally. How about you, Serena? I don't know that it would be that different. I think one of the things that I do care about and that I do wish that we'd been taught about are kind of certain types of logistical things. Like, uh, you know, how do you send an invoice? When I was mm. 19, I think I was at university and I got this job um, doing SEO work and I had to send an invoice. I didn't even know what an invoice was, you know. How do you file a tax return? These sorts of things I think would be quite helpful. Yeah, and you would think that an uh, invoice in particular would be nice, like a simple, straightforward life skill for people to know, totally. given that that's probably how people are going to, you know, work in the future more than they even do now. Yeah. But I tax think... return, it's impossible for anyone to know. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> literally like level. a minefield. Yeah. It's a surprise every year. Yeah. yeah. I just pay accountant now. I do. I yeah. do also. <laughs> I would pay them whatever amount they asked for me <laughs> where just to get it done. Yeah. 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 Do you not think it's weird that we're at a time when we write about so many things and so many personal subjects, including sex. And the studies say you're more likely to talk about sex or even getting an STI than talk about money. And I think there are there is more information out there now, especially aimed at our age group about money than definitely like over the last two years, it's really kind of exploded. But still there are many, 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 many more revealing, like intimate, detailed articles about every area of life but money most of them are anonymous Serena do you think you've written about all kinds of things including spooning I told you I was going to bring this up <laughs> going to a spooning uh, event I like did. what's your view on this so I see this play out in real life um in situations with my friends very close friends who as you said we talk about relationships now childhoods and sex and you know everything in the world and then they'll kind of whisper, oh, do you mind if I could ask, like, roughly, what, what do you pay in rent? Just approximately. <laughs> but you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. And it's like, oh, okay, but, you know, you'll perfectly happily ask me about the ins and outs of my anatomy after a couple of drinks. So, <laughs> um, uh, and I think that's weird because I don't find that a shameful thing to talk about. Um, I think, personally, I don't actually write a huge amount of personal things I personally don't write about sex and relationships in relation to myself um I would have no problem writing about money I've never been asked to I've been asked about to write... your own your own finances yeah. though yeah I wouldn't mind writing about that I don't have really any shame around it I think people have a perception that I make a lot more money than I do <laughs> um and I don't I could make a lot more money doing pretty much anything else <laughs> um and I don't really think that that's anything to be ashamed of. So I, I would happily write about that over writing about my relationship. But does that mean that you're also more confident in asking other people about money, if you don't mind being asked? I think I'm... No, I don't think so, because I'm aware of the stigma. And again, you know, going back to kind of um, friends from Spain, I we totally talk about money and what they earn and, you know, what we earn and all this kind of stuff. And it's not really an issue. But with my friends here, um, I probably wouldn't ask just because I think it would make them uncomfortable. And I don't really want to do that. I think there's also 
inevitably a sense of, is this person going to judge me for what I'm spending my money on, right? And it gets even more complicated when people are in relationships and perhaps one person earns more than the other person. And, you know, we've all had that conversation where, like, oh my God, did you hear that so-and-so has bought a house? How on earth did they afford that? You know, we all care a lot, but no one really wants to acknowledge that we care. And I think that's perhaps where that gap is in terms of content that we're able to consume around money. Because those Refinery29 money diaries, I think, are like wildly popular. Um, and yet there isn't that much around. Yeah, and they're, and they're all anonymous, as said. Mm. I guess I have a slightly contrary view in that I think there's tons of, of writing and content about money, but it's only really we only really notice it when it gets a bad reaction, which is when it's presented through an individual lens. So if you want to find out about credit cards or interest oh, rates, yeah. you know, it's only when we talk about personal spending that it's actually, I think the stigma becomes apparent. And that's just because people like to shame people for their individual decisions. But we do see that on comments about um, relationships and sex as well. Like it, whenever a person is presented to be the face of an issue, that person is going to get criticised, unfortunately. And that's kind of the way of digital media, as I found out myself. Yeah, so tell us this story. You wrote a money diary piece and you put forced put your name to it last <laughs> oh, year. Oh yeah, and many pictures of myself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was last year in January and somehow I'm still talking about it and still being <laughs> written about, um, which gives you an idea. Um, I was asked by my editor to record my spending for a month um, with view to challenging or, I suppose, proving the understanding that millennials could afford to buy a house if only they stopped kind of wasting their money. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and in hindsight, I should have seen that I was being set up a bit. <laughs> Um, but as it was, it was like a fun exercise and I was kind of like, well, you know, I'm pretty confident that I can't, so whatever. Um, and Martin Lewis, who's moneysavingexpert.com, um, got on board to advise me beforehand and kind of assess all my spreadsheets and then give me some advice at the end. So what was the reaction? It was pretty extreme. So I think the reaction really kind of showed me I mean there was a lot of moralizing um, and a lot of it was gendered where things which were about my appearance such as a haircut or clothing were singled out above other things um, in a way where it's hard to imagine the comparable expenditure that a man would be criticized for and yet none of it was was shocking if you really just boil it down I'm just no. literally thinking loud here but it's just you writing down how you get a coffee every day, got a haircut, yeah, went to see yeah. Taylor Swift, like big deal. And that, but yeah, this caused like a massive, yeah. massive storm. And you even wrote a separate piece about the storm that it caused. But and no one criticised that one. That one <laughs> yeah. was my my um, rebuking everyone. I love but that. It, it was interesting it, because the thing was, I w uh, even in that money diary, I was living within my means. Like I wasn't in debt. I had some savings. Um, but that I wasn't saving an enormous amount, but to whom do I owe it to save? You know, like, mm -hmm. if that is how... I'd just moved to London. Um, I was having an enjoyable time going on holiday, kind of getting out and about in a new city that I'd just moved to. It wasn't maybe the sustainable way I could live my life. And eventually that's the takeaway I took from the piece where this like, sort of gentle rebuke that Money Dad gave me, you know, did in, go on to inform my savings for the subsequent year. But... It was interesting to see that really, I think a lot of the things that people had an issue with was how much I earned and what I spent it on, which before 
I was about to say before I made it everyone's business was none of their business, but really I didn't make it their business either. I think it was more just, it was putting it in print was the invitation to comment on it. I guess money is the biggest window into you and, and your lifestyle and your choices. And and that's all really that people want to criticise, I think. It's your lifestyle and choices. It's like if you're spending too much money on a haircut, you're vain. But then at the same time, people will notice if you aren't looking like looking after your care like women can basically be judged on any metric really the kind of the problem with being a woman is that whatever way people want to criticize your spending they can you know if you spend a lot on a gym you're vain if you spend a lot on um, bad food you don't care enough about your body if you like so my haircut which was the thing that everyone <laughs> absolutely went mental over it's 181 pounds Cut and dye. I do that once a year and then I don't do it for a year. Works out pretty well. And it looks lovely. Thank you. So <laughs> um, yeah, I honestly do it once a year. And I think I know men who go once a week or once a month, 30 pounds. That probably adds up to about my mass is terrible. But that's mm. the thing. If you're just looking at a snapshot, there's no kind of context. And to be frank, a lot of people don't care about context. Um, and it's also like when people go vegan, everyone feels very attacked. Or when people open up their marriages, people feel very attacked about their monogamy. Like, everyone is inclined to see other people's personal decisions as a reflection on their own. And the way that people feel safe when their kind of understanding of what's appropriate is challenged or attacked is to fight back and be defensive. So mm, I, I kind of place it more in that context. But like I say, a lot of people seem to mostly have a complaint with what I was being paid, which I also have a complaint about what I was being paid. <laughs> I think I should have been paid more. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah, no. Do you yeah. think it's changing, Serena? Do you think we're getting to a better place with, like in five years' time, is there going to be such a crazy response to these diaries, etc.? Because we've had a lot of books recently published about money that are quite selling quite well. So Yeah, I think there's an appetite for it. I don't know whether our social attitude will change. Um, I think perhaps, like with so many things, it's a case of there's hope for the future generation. Um, I hope that people who are in their early teens now are going to grow up with all of these women ideally also men, talking openly about their own financial situation. Um, and they will see that growing up and they will talk about that growing up. And that will give them a sense of freedom to talk about these things. I think when you get to age 30 and suddenly people start to open up about a topic, it's much harder to kind of uninternalize all the shame that you've grown up feeling. Um, so I think perhaps in that sense, we can look forward. But whether people of our generation will change their attitudes, I'm not sure. Let's say this, what the point you made there. I'd love to see more men talking about this. Absolutely. They earn more, they negotiate better. I don't think I've had really any support from men um, in terms of negotiating raises or even salary transparency, really, and that would have been helpful. When I've had people take me aside and tell me like you should be being paid more this is how you could go about that or this is what I'm being paid or this is what she's being paid this is the word rate you should ask for it's pretty much always women mm. and I mean I've there's been a couple of instances where editors that I've had a good relationship with I've later found out have been paying men more than me for the yeah. same job um, yeah perfect you know, segue totally. to yeah mention that briefly because I remember finding out my male colleague earned 10,000 more than me for doing mm -hmm. the same job 
and God bless him, but <laughs> I worked much harder. And did he tell you that? He did, so actually. I respect that. And, I, and yeah. I thanked him for that. But when I brought this up, essentially, with my boss, it was, well, he, he negotiated it. What do you expect? But like, then you can negotiate using that information, right? Yeah, it was too kind of too late to yeah. take that because that's a big leap. Like that's you're you're very rarely gonna, you know. Even if I did negotiate, am I gonna get the same as him? As, I, I think mean, you could have. I think you'd have grounds for. So the negotiating thing is, I I don't love that. I think you know the recent research shows that women do ask for higher salaries. They do try to negotiate, mm. but they're shut down. I read that. That was um, very grim. Yeah, and I believe that to be true. Mm. I think um, that. I've seen it happen and it's happened to me um, both when you work in-house and when you're freelancing that people have, and it's been said to me actually by editors, um, that they perceive you for some reason or often the things that you're writing about, which again, maybe not super relevant to other industries, but you know, if you're writing about pop culture or if you're writing even something like a money diary or a first person piece, which are typically the things that women are asked to write, they have a lower word rate or, or, or just rate in general. Well, you're seen as not doing quite the same thing that the investigative journalist or the science journalist or the political journalist is doing. And that is something that you're always having to counter. It is because, you know, if you write an opinion piece or a feature about a pop culture trend, that's probably requires you to have exactly the same amount of knowledge of that specific field as the person who's writing the same thing about football Mm. has. And yet it's not valued in the same way. And so I think perhaps, you know, yes, everyone should try and negotiate if they feel they're not being paid enough. Everyone should ask for pay rises when they feel they deserve it. But I think the onus isn't on women to ask for more. The onus is on companies to recognise this is happening and fix it and not start paying people more because they ask for it and they feel awkward and uncomfortable and they like them so yeah okay we'll bump you up five grand you know that's not the way salaries should work but while that is the way I think transparency does help totally yeah it has to to get to that point because even if you think yeah exactly like if they have if bosses are inundated with people going to their you know with people going to them being like hang on this isn't fair that's they're going to make an effort to not settle these cases on an individual basis in future but even from this conversation, it just sounds like everything we've learned is through experience and the only yeah. way you can learn is through... Gossip network, basically. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. So what lesson would you impart to someone who's 10 years younger, starting, entering work, whatever it is? Always ask for more at that level, that point. Always ask for yeah. more. Don't be a journalist. <laughs> Does yeah. that count? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think... It's a good one. I don't know, I don't really feel qualified to impart any kind of You advice. are qualified, we're all relatively qualified <laughs> um, through I, experience. Truly, I would say, get a spreadsheet. If anyone's interested, email me, I will send you my spreadsheet um, <laughs> and start tracking what you spend because honestly, there is nothing worse than that feeling which happened to me once in my life and it, it was due to a mistake with a bill, but it happened to me once. My card was declined in the supermarket mm. because... It had been overdrawn because um, a phone network had put the decimal point in the wrong place when they withdrew my bill, so that was fun. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just nothing worse than that. And if it's going to happen, be prepared. It doesn't matter how much you earn, how little you earn. You know, essentially, your lifestyle does seem to increase 
with your salary. Yeah, like, that's an, I've learned that as well. Astonishing. I don't think, yeah. Astonishing. I don't think I have any more disposable income now than I had when I was at university so making ideally, £700 a month. <laughs> ideally, when you get the pay increase, you save the difference. Never been able to do that. Never happened. That's a great tip, though. Yeah, no, it? It's impossible if, to do. Do yeah. it automatically as soon as you get the, the bump. Just doesn't happen. I think, you know, also, as we were talking about at the beginning, you kind of move up in a way with your peers. And so Mm. what's expected from you becomes more expensive. But also, um, I hope this kind of makes sense. It kind of does in my head. You've talked about spreadsheets and and that is an element of personal responsibility. Um, And that's the same kind of prophecy, if you like, that all these mostly American money gurus are like, make a note of your spending and think yourself rich and you're not broke, you're just blah, blah, pre-rich or whatever it might be. But that's, that, that is an element of, of having to take it in your own hands. But actually the problem isn't our spending at our own individual levels as much broader totally. than Totally. And, you know, writing stuff down isn't going to make you richer. It's just going to make you never have to suddenly wake up and realise you've got no money in the bank and you have to pay your rent. That's where that comes from. And I think that actually the exercise I did do of tracking everything for a month was really helpful. Mm. I mean, I don't necessarily... When when Martin Lewis said, oh, you spend £600 a year on coffee, I wasn't shocked. I was like, yeah, Mm. probably, like, fine. And I will commit to doing that. And it makes every day so much better. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And so it was really quite useful just to be like, okay, well, considering the amount of, like, enjoyment I get from, like, £2.50 or whatever... A day, fine, I'll, I'll absorb that cost. But having to think about that and be confronted with it and was like, yeah, fine, I'll do that. But then with the lunches, I was like, yeah, no, I actually barely notice what I'm eating. You know, I don't, I'm not a foodie. Like, I, if that's where I can make an easy saving, sure. Mm. And I think that exercise was quite helpful just in terms of working out what value for money is. Because that's the other thing, it's about value. It's not yeah. just purely ins and outs. We're not just here, like, to crunch numbers you know, there's a point of enjoyment to life and you earn money not just to always be saving for a future that we don't know what's going to happen. Totally. You know? Point of enjoyment to life. I love that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, without sounding too idealistic, I would like to live to see a world where we do rethink capitalism and we rethink the way that our society is structured around, you know, to benefit people who have the privilege to be able to earn more money. Um, and if you look, you know, purely at housing and cities cities similar to London where rent is so much cheaper Mm. you know those cities thrive there are bigger there are more small businesses there's more people who work in the arts there's more people who are there's fewer people who are actually living in poverty for all those reasons you're spending so much less of your income on rent and if we could something so simple as rent control could drastically change our attitude yeah the adverts on the tube at the moment are for companies that make the most out of short-term rentals if you own investment properties it's all on its head and like your rent control as you say longer term leases more permissive rental agreements where you're allowed a pet and um, to put up pictures like that would be enough for me and to not want to put up a picture that's so but, that's no so but do you know what I mean that, that would be enough for me to never aspire to home ownership again the only really like, re, like reason I want, would feel like I should want a home is so I can put a dog in it and so that I'm not going to be financially destitute when I'm older but if I could achieve both those things then fine yeah. better yeah I think all of these things are kind of structures that have been in place for a long time and especially when it comes to housing, you know, since, since the 1980s, really, um, has become what it is now. And no one really rethinks it because it's easier to say, oh, just write down what you spend, start a spreadsheet, take your lunch to work. And like, yeah, that perhaps we all do have to have a level of individual 
kind of sense of responsibility. But ultimately, we're just trying to fix the stuff that the system has broken for us. And that's not the way it should be. And the grimmest thing is, is that no one is putting any effort into any of these issues while Brexit's happening. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, there's all these kinds of societal changes that on lots of different topics that should be happening, but there's no agenda to that end. And so that's my concern, I guess, that nothing will change until there is a, a crash and it's too late or something like that. That's such a good note to end on. Crash. <laughs> oh, in no. the meantime, keep just, a spreadsheet. <laughs> we all just want a dog and to put the picture on the wall and that would be great. But thank you both so much for coming on. No, great. thank you. Thanks for having us. And next up, I'm going to be speaking to Becky Aldridge, who is of Neon Financial Planning, and she's going to help me answer a listener's money gripe. Hi, Becky. Hi, Rachel. Thank you very much for joining me and helping to answer this uh, reader's query. That's a pleasure. Um, Today, the issue is around pensions, something that many of us need to know more about, including myself. The reader's query is that she's built up this pension for about three and a half years in her previous job. Her name is Jenny, by the way. And she's recently quit that job and moved to a two-year degree to retrain to be a nurse with the NHS. And she wrote to me asking what should she do with that pension? Because obviously she spent a few years building it up and now it's just sitting there. So the first question is, is there actually any rush to do anything with it and what happens to it? Well, the first thing to say is I think it's a fantastic uh, choice that she's made to um, train in the NHS. So, you know, Kudos to to Jenny for doing that, making that decision. Um, When it comes to her pension, Jenny, there's absolutely no pressure to do anything at all with it. So you're just starting a new job. Get yourself settled into that, I would suggest, and um, feeling really comfortable with that. And then when you've got a moment to catch your breath, have a look at the pension then um, and just make sure that it still does what you need it to. But don't feel that you need to... um, you know, start booking appointments with people or getting lots of paperwork together. It's just not necessary. It's going to be fine for a while. So the whole time that she's now training and that pension is, is just sitting there, it's not growing at all, is it? Or is it growing? It should be growing, yeah. So the money that Jenny and her employer over the last three and a half years have paid into the pension, all that's gone into a pot and that pot will be invested in one or more funds. Now, I know this is all a bit uh, full of jargon, but a fund is a collection of investments. Um, Each fund could be a little bit different, but Jenny's probably got one or two funds in her pension and they will be invested and they should be growing. They won't grow every day. Um, Sometimes they'll go down, but the majority of the time they'll be going up. So while Jenny is in her new job, that pension that she did have should just carry on being invested in exactly the same way that it had been before and it should be growing a little bit all the time. And she is continuing to pay a fee for this pension? Yes, all pensions have charges deducted from them. Um, So they tend to take two forms. There can be a charge for the pension pot itself. Um, So if there's a pension provider, a big big company, um, they might be taking a small Um, fee from the pension Um, and then there will be charges that come out of the investment funds. That's where the bulk of the charges come out. Um, Some pension plans only have charges coming out of the funds but yes she will be paying for it the whole time. That's not avoid that sorry that's um, unavoidable unfortunately. 
But so ultimately, it doesn't matter if she doesn't do anything straight away. I mean, what happens if she left it there for years or possibly decades? Because obviously you don't access your pension money until you retire. Is that correct? Mm, yeah, that's right. So, well, she could leave it there for decades. She really could. And um, we see people all the time who've been doing that and they come to us and they've got, you know, 10 or more pensions from um, previous employers over the years. So it is perfectly possible to do that. Um, the only thing I would say is that it may not be brilliant long term to do that. Um, firstly, most people like things to be neat and tidy. So as people move on from one employer to the next, it's quite nice at some point to be able to pull pensions together um, so that you've got just one or two to look after rather than a whole you know, load of them that you've just accumulated over the years. It's nicer to see everything all in one place and it's a bit easier. Um, also, pension pots tend to get a little bit more competitive over time. You know, the more modern pensions that people are opening today will probably be better value and have a better range of choices than pensions that were set up five, 10, 15 years ago. So it's a good idea to every now and again, just kind of have a look at what you've got and think, well, can I do better? But you don't have to do it every month or every year. Um, it's fine to leave it for a while. Nothing much is going to change that quickly. And just lastly, a brief note on how do you actually go about putting everything in one pot and how do you choose where to put it? Mm, okay, um, so it's called transferring. If you want to bring pensions together, you have to have um, obviously two pensions or more. So you have uh, the pension that you've got your money in already and then the one that it's going to be moving into. You might be bringing several pensions together that you've already got, um, but you might also be setting up a brand new one and sort of chucking everything into that, that new place. Um, how do you go about choosing one? Well, to be honest, a lot of private pensions are pretty similar. Um, they cost a similar amount um, and the range of investments inside them is pretty similar. Um, so if you just want to do something quickly, I would say almost anything off the shelf is going to be OK. Um, but if you have got some, um, you know, quite a bit more saved or if you've got some more specific uh, requirements, then speak to a financial planner if you can. Um, do some research online um, and don't be afraid to contact the pension providers themselves. You know, if you've looked online and found that there's a couple that you like the look of, just give them a call and find out what their charges are, what the options are um, and how easy it is to move from one pension to another. Perfect. So much information. We'll come back to that in future. But thank you very much, Becky. That's a pleasure. And that's it for this week. So many thanks for listening to An Honest Account. Please join us next week to chat about money and dating. Please also rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on all your normal platforms. Thanks again to Moneybox and see you next week. Thank you.